As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Um, my mum from Liverpool, and they used to, he used to um, sail to the States during the war um, and was a ship's engineer, but went on the Manchester Ship Canal. And I always found it, when I was a kid, a little boy, I always thought it was very glamorous until I saw it. <laughs> <laughs> so you're a scouser? No, um, my mum and dad were, yeah. uh, but I'm not. But the family team is... Uh, Tramere Rovers, if you have a problem with that, you're in trouble. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, it, it, it can cause interesting fights, that. Is uh, it rolling? Yeah. All right, yeah, we are rolling. Wow. We are, have the esteemed John Sweeney in here today looking at his track record. And on this channel, we've got over 400 videos on the Epstein case. John is here thanks to my dad. Hunting Ghislaine Maxwell. You, he sent me the link and I was like, yes. Last night I was listening to Power, Robert Maxwell's backstory. Yes. So people are absolutely obsessed with the Epstein Maxwell case on this channel. Looking at the news stories, the whole world is obsessed with it. If you look at Weinstein, all the other stories, Epstein Maxwell is more than all of them combined. It is the biggest story in true crime right now. So it's a real honor to have John Sweeney in here. Why did you get into the Epstein-Maxwell case? Well, um, first of all, um, it's the first time I've ever been called esteemed. I'm going to sue you for libel. Uh, 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 esteemed for yelling at Scientologists. Okay, esteemed for yelling at Scientology. I'll take that. Um, so what happened was um, last, um, I, I kind of left the BBC in slightly irritating circumstances um, last year, looking for something to do. And the moment I left the BBC, I pitched Ghislaine Maxwell because she'd gone missing. And I'm always interested in people who, who vanish off the face of the earth. And what happened was first there was, I went to LBC who said, yes, this is interesting. Um, we're, we're keen on this. And then nothing happened. And basically, uh, the reason for that was first the election. Um, obviously, they're busy. Then the virus hits um, and then everything sort of slows down. So it was only on um, July the 1st that I actually signed the contract with them and the Story Lab to do the hunting Jelen, and she was found on July the 2nd. So I found up the boss, Chris Baum, at uh, LBC, and I said, <laughs> I signed the contract, I signed the contract, and he said, I don't care, it's still fascinating. So it became not... Where is she? I, she's in prison in New York pending trial. She denies everything. But why did she come to this place? Because she's, as I, I say, 
in the podcast, it's a, a fairy story in reverse in which the beautiful princess starts out as a beautiful princess and she ends up in a kind of dungeon. And, and, and it's a kind of, I, I find the psychology of the story completely fascinating. To be fair, I, I'd, um, I, did, I was a reporter on The Observer back in the day and I knew friends of mine who worked on the uh, on the mirror and told me these astonishing stories about Robert Maxwell that he was a psycho and weird and yet they kind of liked him he was a one of them said from the Daily Mirror well he was a monster but he was our monster <laughs> and and um the, it, it was um mm. by the way you you sound very ill you're, you're gonna you're gonna well, last well, you're not gonna die because that would be embarrassing br- bring, bringing you down here we were on our snack uh lunch break so when you went outside to do your business we crammed all our food so i think <laughs> i've got some chips from the kebab house stuck in my tonsils right now <laughs> so um, get out chip <laughs> So, so right. Americans um, listening uh, might not know that you're from Widnes. Yes. And Widnes is kind of like Alabama. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think the American audience has been wondering about Widnes, but now you have absolutely put it in context for them. And, and it's not the posh end of Alabama either. <laughs> <laughs> um, Cheshire. No, Lancashire gave it to Cheshire, who tried to give it to Merseyside, and Merseyside refused it. I was... Uh, oh, but God bless the people of with us, such friendly people. The, uh, that's a view. Um, <coughs> I, w- I spent five years of my life um, in, um, in Altrincham, um, where so I've got a slight northern, I can do posh. Hello, officer, I'm sorry, I'm, I haven't done anything wrong to a policeman. And then I can go, f*** off, can I swear? I'm sorry, I haven't asked. But I can do that too. Um, but I'm not going to... Anyway, so back to, back to Jelaine. So her father, Robert Maxwell, is... He makes his money uh, from newspapers, but before then, he does a series of magazine deals with, with scientific publication, very smart uh, at the back end of the, um, at the end of World War II. Then, and he gets, does a lot of business with the Soviet bloc. And to keep that business sweet, he does something really quite disgusting, which is a series of hagiographies of the of the nasty dictators um, who were the Soviet placemen in Eastern Europe. So uh, celebrating uh, Todor Zhivkov, uh, the strongman of Bulgaria, and the one I was most interested in was was Nikolai Ceausescu. Now he, he uh, so for this book, you know, the celebration Nikolai Ceausescu. Um, he asked a question, Mr. Ceausescu, President Ceausescu, you've been president of Romania for 17 years now. What's the secret of your success? There's no mention of the secret police. Uh, what happens is that as a reporter on, on the Observer in 1989, all the good reporters are sent to Panama with the CIA are trying to get rid of Noriega, which means there's only rubbish left. And I'm actually the gossip columnist. <laughs> And the foreign editors say, and there's this big, there's this like big death in Timisoara and just before Christmas, 1989. And the foreign editor points at me and says, Peter, go to Timisoara. And then I get to Timisoara and then I phone him and say, by the way, my name's John. Uh, <laughs> like he, he sent the wrong person. But never mind. It was, I did a, um, I did, uh, I drove across from Timisoara, I drove across the Romanian Revolution on Christmas Eve 1989, getting to uh, Bucharest at night 
um, to be, and we were um, threatened by the Securitate and uh, shot at by revolutionaries the whole way through. <laughs> Terribly exciting. But I had a personal kind of like, <sighs> who were Nikolai Ceausescu's friends and not my friends. And one of those was Robert Maxwell. So um, I then I'm in the wars in Yugoslavia, again reporting for The Observer. And there's a terrible siege in Dubrovnik at the end of, um, towards the back end of 91. And I'm uh, basically stuck in the siege and I'm going to miss my son's birthday. And, and I eventually get out by hiding in a, um, in a ferry, which will take women and children only. And I'm and I've got a UN pass, but the um, the captain says no. The if uh, he's a Croat captain going to a Serb point in a kind of there's a kind of armistice thing, but he's afraid to take me even though I've got a UN pass. Did you have to get in drag outfit to get on that? So I hid in a lady's toilet in the ferry. <laughs> um, and by the way, if you're a bloke, they anyway. Let's not go there. Uh, but but um, I managed to get out. And I'd seen too many horrible things <sighs> from the spring onwards, the, the breakup, the fall of, of Yugoslavia. And the, 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 the thing that really upset me, I can still remember it now, was there was this little kid who had salt and pepper hair. He was like five, little boy. And he'd been hit by a shell, which had hit his, his upper leg. It hadn't hit his groin, but he was, he was going to be okay. But he looked like my son. And and I can remember crying in hospital, and the um, the, the doctor I was with saying, you know, have you, uh, you you shouldn't be doing this. And and actually, you know, I wanted to say, listen, I've seen people with their heads blown off, but this is getting to me because it's getting to me. So I got out um, by hiding in the ladies' toilet. Thank you very much for those nice ladies who actually they they kind of some of them had seen me in, and when I managed just as we were docking. They all kind of grinned at me. And I, I was trying to say, I'm sorry. Anyway, but I got out, got back to London, and um, we went um, shopping uh, on the Asda, on the A3, Roehampton. And then suddenly on the PM program, there's news that Robert Maxwell is missing from his yacht. And I can remember um, it's my, uh, my ex now, a lovely woman, uh, she says, are, you, are we going shopping or what? And I said, I'm terribly sorry. I've got to listen to this. And I can remember just sitting there and she's buying nappies and Weetabix and everything. And I'm, um, and I'm just shirking my shopping duties because I'm obsessed with this. <laughs> but because I'm tearful, I can't go and do the story. So the weird thing about Hunting Jelen, it's me trying to do this story about Robert Maxwell and what happened disappearing into the sea 30 years on from when it happened, because it's a story that I've always wanted to tell, and I've finally been able to have the opportunity to do and it. This is what we are talking about on this channel. To understand the Epstein story, you have to understand the Robert Maxwell story. And you mentioned Bulgaria, Romania, Maxwell laundering money through Bulgaria, capitalizing on the whole situation. But before we get to all that, because I was absolutely flabbergasted researching Robert Maxwell, that he built this network of organized crime, politicians, intelligence agencies. I've never seen a network like it of anyone I've ever researched, but it, 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 it is astounding. And you almost have a begrudging respect for what he did. Like you said, he's our monster. He, how could you do this? Yeah, he was. I mean, it, it, it's kind of like the, the people who wrote HBO Succession have kind of understated it 
because he, and, and they they kind of it's a bit based on Murdoch that, but the Maxwell dynasty is way more fascinating and way darker. So he comes from a dirt poor Jewish family. Could you and, could you describe in detail how? He just came from that family to to rise up. So, he, yeah, he came from a, a dirt poor family in what was then Czechoslovakia. Um, I think he was born in 1923, if memory serves. He's very, very poor, Orthodox Jewish, um, and um, he he's a big guy though. His dad's a big guy, and he's a big guy. You can feel the anti-Semitism getting worse and worse um, in the 30s. He gets out quite early um, on, and he makes it eventually to France, and he's a Czech, um, and he's with the kind of free Czech army, and eventually he gets to Britain. Um, And he joins the British army. He's good. He's got a gift for languages. And he can... So at this point, he's speaking Czech, Hungarian, German... Um, all the languages uh, he would use back home. And then he learns English very, very quickly and rises through the ranks. He keeps on changing his name. And uh, at one point, he storms a, um, a Nazi, a German uh, machine gun nest um, in early '45, and gets the military cross given to him by General Montgomery. He is a brave man. Then what happens is that towards the very end of uh, uh, April 45, Hitler's got a month to live, uh, and people, the Germans are surrendering. So there's one uh, town, the the mayor comes out with the white flag, he said the troops in the town are going to surrender. And there's somebody in an SS tank who doesn't agree with surrendering, and he fires a shell at the British lines. And the poor mayor can't control the guy from the SS. Doesn't, isn't expecting this. And Maxwell takes out his gun and shoots him. And actually, that's in, um, it's in his own authorised uh, biography. And uh, he was being investigated for that war crime um, when he died. Now, so there you are. There you've got Robert Maxwell in a, in a nutshell. He is incredibly brave. He's courageous. He's also a cold-blooded killer, both at the same time. He, when he finally, uh, he ends up the war as a captain with an MC in, and admired for, um, for what he's done. Not that bit, but generally he's, he, he's perceived to have had a good war. He, find, he gets himself to Budapest and he finds out that his mum and dad and his um, three younger sisters and brothers are all dead, as is their community, as is, you know, nearly all of European Jewry. So um, you've got to feel sorry for him for um, for his background, for piring out. He then does this clever deal where he buys up German scientific publications, which have pretty much been kind of locked away from the Nazis. So there's a there's treasure there, and he sees the treasure, and he builds and builds and builds, and he makes a ton of money. He then overdoes it and crashes, and there's a big investigation into him being a a crook, essentially, because what he's doing is he's boosting his sales and lying about it, and eventually he's found out, and there's a government, um, a Board of Trade Inspectors report in 73, I think it is, in which it says we do not think he's um, the kind of person who should run a publicly quoted company, a company on the stock exchange. 
that should be the end of him. It isn't. He's done something clever, and he survives, and he comes back. And from then on, his nickname is the Bouncing Check. <laughs> uh, he's also known. He's also known as Captain Bob. Now, now the thing is, he is genuinely kind of. I mean, I know good people who really uh, good Fleet Street reporters who liked him. And if you listen to the Hunting Shalem podcast, you get it that actually he's there's something kind of amazing about this man there's one merchant banker a Rothschild who said I've shot Robert Maxwell through the head between the eyes 17 times this morning and he keeps on getting up and coming at me <laughs> he was vast six foot three six foot four at his death something like 23 stone he used to he had a, a head of thick hair which had obviously gone gray and he used to dye it raven black so he looked at the end of his life like a bloated version of Jabba the Hutt tremendous posh English, far posher than you will ever speak, Sean. (laughs) (laughs) Because Altrium is posher than witness, folks. Really, Uh, Spain? (laughs) (laughs) But he's got this animal charisma, which is, um, he's a bit like Trump. Um, Let's not go there. But um, he's got got this charisma. He's got... um, a, 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 a following, and then he's got people who hate him. One of those people is Rupert Murdoch. And and uh, to be honest, of the two, I would be on Maxwell's kind of side. Why not? And then there's um, the, the, the City of London establishment. They're anti-Semitic. They're anti-Jewish back in the 50s and 60s in an unpleasant way, and he bests them. Good on him, you'd think. But there's a problem because he is a terrible bully. And the people who worked for him, he takes over the Mirror in 84. And the people who work with him tell terrible stories. Of, and then there is, there is dishonesty and then there is a kind of cruelty. So take the dishonesty, there's a game, um, a football game called Spot the Ball, where mirror readers were invited to spot the ball. I, I, I imagine that's the, uh, the goal and imagine there are three players all looking as the, the forward heads the ball into the back of the net. So where's the ball? And you've got all three players, the goalie, the, uh, the guy heading the ball, and the defender there, and they're all looking, and so the ball would be there, yeah? On spot the ball, it was down here, uh, because you didn't want... The, the prize was a million pounds, but if you put the ball there, following the logic, it would be down there. And this was so bent, and he didn't want anyone to win because at the end, he was running out of money. Mm. Now, that's the simplest way of understanding what was going on. But he was also, at the very end, he was stealing money from the banks, and he was robbing Peter to pay Paul. Who cares? Well, um, you should have a banker on one of these days. I'm using my words advisedly. I'm not rhyming. Um, and um, uh, Or... Anyway, but he was, this is the big crime in my book, in everybody's book. He was stealing money from the Mirror pension funds, 400 million quid, which meant that people who'd worked their entire life for the paper had suddenly found themselves um, getting half of what they were expecting to when they're 70 and 80. This was a nasty thing to do. As well as that, he was. He became more and more difficult and crazy as he got older and older. Now, there's Roy Greenslade tells this story, which we didn't have time for, but there's one point where they're taking the helicopter back from the Labour Party conference, 
Um, he's in it with Betty, Robert Maxwell's wife, the pilot. And Robert Maxwell gets annoyed with the pilot for driving the helicopter. So at one point, he takes over the um, the thing you drive it with. What's it called? I've forgotten. Um, joystick. Yeah, the joystick. <laughs> and uh, uh, and he he and, and the pilot, you know, what's going on? And Betty loses it. What, what are you doing, you stupid man? Because and that's how arrogant, and stupid he was. He would he had a helipad in the heart of London. He would urinate off the top of it. He would piss off the top of it onto the ants below because who who cares about them? He would um, use cloth towels to wipe his bottom Ooh. and then leave them um, around for his poor Filipino Ooh. mates to pick Did you up. Hear that, James? Wiped his bum with cloth towels. So, and leave them. So that <sighs> now this. Now, there's somebody who's losing it. <sighs> then, how he be, treats his family. So, there are, there are various versions of this, which, um, which we, we go into in the podcast. Some, some there's good evidence for, some of it is more difficult. But um, Betty Maxwell, his widow, wrote a book before she died, um, and she describes, it's obvious that she loves this guy. She has nine children with him. She's rebuilding the family he lost in the Holocaust. And she loves him. And she says, um, at one point she writes to him saying that the way you treat your family, it's I, I, I regret recreating your murdered family for you. It's mm. incredibly tough for a woman who loves him. She said, you, you behave dictatorially, you're harsh, you're brutal, you behave, um, you take sadistic pleasure in crushing the people around you, the family. He beat um, his own kids. Um, now, that was kind of common back in the day. And remember, he was born in 1923. So that's not uncommon, but he beat his children. Now, this story, we don't know whether it's true because there are only um, um, well, there are two witnesses to it, but I'll tell you the story. We don't know whether it's true. There's a woman called Eleanor Berry who has a, um, she's the daughter of um, uh, the rich man who owns the Telegraph group of newspapers, um, the Berries. Her name's Eleanor Berry and she's eccentric. At one point, um, she's got mental health problems. At one point, um, Robert Maxwell saves her from um, electroconvulsive uh, shock therapy, right? So, she was not a reliable witness, um, but uh, somebody I know, former editor of Private Eye, Richard Ingrams, believes that this story may well be true. He's inclined to believe it's true. What she says is that she uh, was once shown on a table in the, in the, in the big fancy house uh, that Maxwell had in Oxford, Headington Hill Hall, a series of implements with which um, Robert Maxwell um, used to beat his daughter, Jelaine. And Jelaine tells Eleanor Berry, according to Eleanor Berry, um, that Daddy was nice to me because he would allow me to select which one to be beaten with. Mm. At that point, Jelaine is nine. Now, I don't know whether that story is true. I'm not saying it's true. It's a, it's a story told in her book by Eleanor Berry, and she, as I said, is an eccentric woman and may not be reliable. One second. She also tells it on YouTube. The video is out there if people want to watch it in Elena's own words. And I was going to ask you if you thought that perhaps if it is true, 
um, subconsciously that may have laid down some kind of sadomasochistic streak in Ghislaine? It's... There are, she also, Eleanor Berry also talks about Betty Maxwell giving her a book of Marquis de Sade and two more pieces of information. Um, in 2002, um, um, Vicky, I'm trying to remember the name of the British reporter who worked for Vanity Fair. Um, I've forgotten her name. Anyway, a reporter working for Vanity Fair interviews Epstein uh, in Manhattan, and there's only one book in the Manhattan House on show, and it's Marquis de Sade. And when the Palm Beach Police Department raided Epstein's house in um, um, Palm Beach, um, they find an Amazon receipt for three books about sadomasochism. So what you've got there is some evidence. The first piece of evidence is more difficult to assess. I don't know what happened. Um, because I wasn't there, but it's clear that Epstein was into sadomasochism, and this evidence from Eleanor Berry points to Ghislaine being there. Now, there's a difference in that none of the women, these young girls who were sexually abused by Epstein, talk about physical sadism. But there is a kind of psychological sadism in what happens to them. They didn't know that they were going to be, or the ones I've spoken to, didn't know that they were going to end up giving sexualized uh, massages. They didn't know that. And then there's another piece of detail um, from the Vanity Fair writer. When you went into the, his house in Manhattan, there was the hall was decorated with... Um, glass eyes made for British Tommies, British soldiers in the First World War who'd been blinded. And they'd obviously overproduced these awful things. And so this wall was covered with this stuff as you come into the house. And that's creepy with a capital C, Sean. Yeah. And I think anybody who can imagine the suffering of that generation, the First World War, that'd be blinded, for that to be a kind of talking point in, in your house as you come in, that's to me, that's about sadism. It's about frightening people and creeping them out and, and enjoying it and savoring it. Now, one of the witnesses um, um, against Epstein um, um, is a woman called Maria Farmer, who says that when she was a receptionist in the, uh, in the house, um, of Epstein's house in Manhattan, she was taken into a back room and there were TV monitors. Remember, this is 96 when you had to have monitors to show stuff. But basically, the monitors showed as a, a bank of monitors and they showed all the you know toilet, massage table, bed. So toilet, massage table, bed again and again and again. So I suspect that there was also a TV camera hidden in the hall and people could see these, this wall of glass eyes and watch the fear in their minds. So the, the kind of working hypothesis of our podcast, Hunting Shalane, is that when her father dies, Shalane Maxwell loses one monster. She goes to Manhattan and finds another. This is absolutely breathtaking. And for people on this channel who are obsessed with this case, you are, just the information you've, given us today honestly it's um really putting a lot of things into place that we've 
been trying to work our way around and, and research. So you've covered tons of ground there. So I've got a few questions just going back over everything what you've said. First one then is, so my understanding is Maxwell's mum, Robert Maxwell's mum, told him to go to England and copy the mannerisms of an English gentleman and you'll succeed in life. And then we've got these descriptions of his very early um, humble origins. Do you think that his early humble origins, he described them accurately or he exaggerated them to do a rags to riches? I think he was poor. Um, his, his old man was a smuggler and they lived um, they lived on the edge of the Aust old, um, actually, well, it was Czechoslovakia, um, which had been the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So I think that they were poor, but they knew, he, he knew how to jump across borders. He knew how to do trade. And so you, you get that, that flavor of stuff. Uh, but I think he really was poor. I think, for example, um, somebody phoned me up um, or somebody emailed me um, who wants to do research into rich men going to the toilet in this way. Oh, leaving that, for example, wiping um, the bottom of... And also the other thing he used to do was have meetings with people while he was on the loo. And you could hear him evacuate and stuff like that. Now, I, I and I believe that to be true. And um, this um, young woman researcher got in touch with me and said, do you think many rich men do this? And my speculation <laughs> is that Rupert Murdoch or, um, or um, um, uh, you know, Bill Gates don't do this because they were brought up in money anyway. Or, uh, Bill Gates was um, relatively well off. Uh, uh, Rupert Murdoch was very well off. His father was a rich man. And they wouldn't do this. But it's the kind of thing, if you were brought up dirt poor, you would do. And... As you get older, you kind of revert um, in a in a funny way. So I, that's my um, so my, my sense of it is that yes, he was very very poor. He was streetwise and cunning, which is how he survived. He was a great survivor. The whole family are survivors too. Um, I don't know about the, the story about the mum. I, it could well be true. He does have an opportunity when he's, I think he's in North Africa, he could have gone to the States, but he ended up going uh, to Britain. Um, I think that's primarily because Britain was in the war in 1940 when he had to make his decision and America was still neutral at that point. Okay, so he built this empire then based on unlocking this treasure trove of scientific documents that were translated. Now, tens of millions of people were involved in World War II. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What made him unique, a soldier, to be able to see that treasure trove, to access that treasure trove, and then to parlay that into this massive fortune he was so that what happened was that there was a um a german publisher called springer um who who wanted to publish he wanted to publish his newspaper and he also knew people who wanted to publish their scientific papers from before the nazis i so there's a memory going back we can make money out of doing this and we've got this stuff the problem is being german at this point in 1945 1946 they weren't allowed to the man in charge of both censoring but also approving paper so i I am the officer in charge of allowing you, um, if you're German, Sean, in 1946, to publish a newspaper. That man is Robert Maxwell. Oh! (laughs) Filling in all the blanks, John Sweeney. (laughs) We have skirted around these things for so long. So, (sighs) So he is in a perfect place. And he's the son of a smuggler. <gasps> he's the son of a smuggler who knows how to horse trade. And so what he does is that he uses um, he uses his and you know is it a bit corrupt? I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. It's also kind of virtuous because what what he's essentially doing is giving an injection of of, of money and belief into good Germans who want to publish good stuff and 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 pick up. Uh, you know, Germany's defeated and pick it up and help them and get them going again. So that there is, it's not all um, um, uh, crooked money here. Did he make a ton of money off the back of this position? Yes. But he saw his opportunity and went for it. Um, which So fair play to him. Uh, that's a good thing. Now, anyway, the, the, ask me um, far away. I yeah, so, of, all right. So I own my own little I can, t- I can talk about this all the time. Yes, let's, let's. We, we've got, I yeah, need we, to go we, to bed at midnight. It's, uh, we've okay. got five hours. The longest podcast we've <laughs> done is... a joke. The long, longest one we've done so far is four hours, ten minutes. Oh, wait, yeah, fuck off. I'm not doing that. <laughs> John Wedge is like, Psh, I got my record. All right, so... In this modern era of the internet and technology, I've got my own little publishing company, and I can facilitate that, you know, through files and stuff. We're going back now almost 100 years when technology was a lot different. It must have been quite cumbersome, though. Even though he's got this connection and he sees these, you know, these scientific documents, to then build a publishing company in that era, isn't that a lot of hard work? Not really, because the publishers, the German publishers, had done it before. Mm. So, so what happens is when the Nazis come along in 1933, everything, can get, everything becomes a national state secret and they close it down. But before, when uh, in the Weimar Germany, when, you know, they had proper German publications and it would be the German, um, I'm, I'm making this up, but you get the flavor of it, the German uh, magazine of uh, metallurgy, um, you know, 
um, German uh, magazines, periodicals, really, on chemistry. We can do this. We can. This is a clever way of making synthetic rubber. And suddenly, you know, that's worth money. And all the big universities in the West want to buy a copy. So it was a license. He he saw it. It was a license to print money. He wasn't a genius because the guys who wanted to do that knocked on the door. But I'm not doubting for a second, Sean, that he was he was a great entrepreneur. And he had a tremendous memory. Um, it was eidetic, I think, is, is, is the clever phrase for it. I'm not quite sure what it means, but it's something like you, it's photographic. And he could also, you know, he could, he, you know, he's British, although actually he's originally Czech, but um, he's pretending to be posh, posh British. He's working with Germans and he's making money. Then he, then he works out that the next hidden market after... Uh, Germany rises and rises, but still he's got his magazines and periodicals. He never loses that for a long, long time. He then starts going in and trading with the Soviet bloc as well, which is another difficult area. And people are going, well, what's he doing over there? Now, part of it is because he's from there. Part of it is because he speaks the language. He affects throughout his life to being a socialist, though actually he behaves um, like a kind of monster capitalist the whole way through in the, the way he deals with his own family, with people, his employers, all that stuff. Um, so he's a blazing hypocrite, which is the kind of person who actually went down well with the Ceausescu's um, of this world. Um, his problem is that after 1989 and the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of Soviet Eastern Europe, his old um, fishing grounds had, um, had, had, had closed down. They were on to new things. And so he was a kind of a beast from another time, uh, kind of like a polar bear, but the, the, um, the ice cap was melting. And he made a series of mistakes. The, the big one was he wanted to best Murdoch. He wanted to, to ha be a big publisher in the States. And he, he went in and bought stuff um, in the States. Um, the Macmillan Airline Guide which was a silly um, um, bet he made, and basically he paid a million dollars more. Then there was a financial crash, um, 91, and suddenly he couldn't, he couldn't um, run his business. And what he started doing was robbing Peter to pay Paul. Now, in his mind, it didn't matter. But he became, uh, his, his share price kept on going down and down and down. And then he started raiding his workers' pension funds. And at one point, Shilem, uh, according to Tom Bauer, has written the definitive book about Robert Maxwell. A year before he dies, in, um, it's the 5th of November, 1990, she flies Concord, um, goes to New York, meets um, a lawyer who gives her paper representing shares with Berlitz Language School, which is worth $200 million. And that belongs to a one of his publicly quoted companies on the London Stock Exchange. She flies back. I think she parties in New York, then flies back um, uh, the next day and gives it to Robert. And then Robert puts it in one of his private companies. So what's happened is he's just stolen $200 million from the shareholders in his publicly quoted company. And he kept on doing that again and again and again, but he couldn't keep up. And then that, then we get to the place 
where in uh, October um, um, 1991, he goes on his yacht. Now it's called the Lady Jelaine. After his little daughter, who he loved the most, after his daughter um, is currently in prison in New York, she denies the six charges she's facing, but she's rotting in hell in an awful prison cell. So the question you've got to ask is, is Robert Maxwell the man who ended up deforming this poor woman? So that's how she ended up in this awful place she's in. I think there's definitely a role there, but there's a, there are some complexities. And one of the reoccurring themes throughout Maxwell's life and Epstein as well is the role of the intelligence agencies. So Maxwell, you know, he'd go to Russia, sit down with the president of the, over there and the intelligence agencies, laundry his money through Bulgaria in with the Bulgarian intelligence agencies, come back to the UK, give information to MI5, MI6, CIA, and then go over to Israel and give information to Israel. There was just so many involved. There were, but my view, I'm skeptical about about how this nets out, but there's a time mm. thing going on here as well, Sean. Uh, there's some gossip that, um, remember he's Czech, and the Czechs have got a, um, a big arms industry, which, unlike the German arms industry, wasn't destroyed entirely during the war. Um, and there are stories that he helped supply the new Israeli army, the new Israeli Defense Force, before it actually started, with with enough machine guns to get it going. Remember when he died, he, he had a big um, fancy um, funeral in, uh, in Jerusalem and there were six former heads of Israeli intelligence there. So he's big potatoes. The question is, when? When did he do the big favour? And I think it was back in 48, um, 49, when Israel was desperate for weapons where the rest of Europe and the Americans were wary of giving it to them and Maxwell got them out. That's my number one feeling about are, are it. Are you saying then that Maxwell made his intelligence agency connections in the 1940s? That's when it began. I'm saying that there are stories, I don't know for a fact, um, but there are stories that he helped run guns to nascent Israel when it really, really needed them. And that's why, that is why he got his fancy funeral, virtually a state funeral in Israel, rather than he gave them fantastic secrets later on. Because by the end of his life, Israel was a, a, a very thriving and successful country. It didn't need Robert Maxwell like it really needed somebody like Robert Maxwell in 1948. Um, but going through his career, he's certainly going to uh, the Soviet bloc um, when hardly anybody was, and the British certainly used um, businessmen who went across to as spies. Uh, there's a guy called, um, is it Wynne? Um, I've, I've got his book somewhere. I, um, I think it's Gregory Wynne. Somebody watching can correct me if, I'm, if my memory is wrong. But there is a series of people who do that. In um, Tinker Tale, a soldier spy, there's a guy called uh, Jerry Westerby. I think it's Westerby who is the newspaper man who works for the comic. Um, this is, it's in the, um, the, uh, the one with Guinness, um, the TV series. And he reports back to MI6 about what he's seen. 
and there's a there's a twist is there's a twist in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, so it's very possible that Maxwell did that, it, it, and may also um, now most of his life he he denied his Jewishness, and it was only towards the end of his life that he actually uh, became very um, conscious of his Jewish Jewish roots, almost uh, like in the last year of his life. So, um, but my view is, if you asked me, which you have, that I don't think he was of great use to Mossad, for example, number one, um, when um, at the time of his death, because he'd lost his common sense. Basically, this is a man who had a thriving publishing empire worth roughly um, a billion quid, say, in, 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 in today's money. And then he gambled two billion on it, which he didn't have at the worst possible time, buying stupid investments, and then robbed Peter to pay Paul and, and was about to be found out when he fell off his yacht. Was he pushed or did he jump? Good question. We'll get on to that. But... I don't think that's a reason for me if I'm running Mossad, I'm wary of this man because I know he's a loose cannon and I may have historic favours I want to thank him for, uh, so I'm going to give him a fancy funeral, but he's not high-grade intelligence source material, somebody you want to protect or somebody you want to murder. So it seems that everybody has a life cycle of usefulness to the intelligence agencies so let's go back to when maxwell was peddling promise software what do you know about that i don't know much about it because i haven't gone into that but or rather I, I, my focus chris borman um at lbc global uh, global owns lbc which used to be called the london broadcasting corporation it's just lbc these days said stick to Gilan, stick to Gilan, stick to Gilan. is this the bulgarian stuff that we're talking so, about. So Promise Software had a back door in it. Um, oh, yes. No, this is the Israeli, yeah. the, the, the software. Yeah. Now, that's interesting, but I don't think it's... So here's what I think, is that uh, just the other day, for example, in relation to um, Khashoggi, the Saudi dissident, WhatsApp, there's a, the Israeli spy companies have developed a back door into WhatsApp. Um, so you can know about that. Once you know about that stuff, it doesn't matter who's invented it because you use the technique. So I, I, I've read about this on the internet. I don't put, and it's not in the podcast, partly because there are only six episodes, I don't put much value in it because I don't see, for example, I, I don't see him being murdered. I discount murder at the end. I believe that it was either suicide or an accident. Uh, to be honest, I favour suicide. Uh, my friend, Richard Ingram, the former editor of Private Eye, prefers it was an accident. He peed off the helicopter pad, the helipad. He was peeing off the back of his yacht. The yacht wobbled <laughs> because that what happens at sea, and he went forward and pissed and then held on. But my, uh, my number one uh, witness for this is somebody I know and uh, I've got great a regard for is Kenny Lennox, a wonderful mirror photographer, who's on our podcast in episode one, Monsters, and he says, um, I was the first man to identify Robert Maxwell. He's got a couple of moles behind his left ear, and, you know, that was the identification, no question. And 
the body was pretty um, uh, untouched and he looked good apart from a braise on his kind of shoulder, like a graze or something like this, which one of the pathologists said, speculated was, after he falls or jumps, suicide or accident, he holds on to the handrail for as long as possible. And this can happen in a suicide and you think you're going to do it and then you change your mind. Or it can happen in an accident, he's pissed and he's still trying to hold on, but he's too heavy and then he slips in. Um, none of that makes the um, the software st- be- because I've got strong my deduction is it's either suicide or accident it's not murder I'm not going there were the Israelis grateful to him yes I believe it's because of the earlier story rather than the later story Israel today or in 1991 didn't need Robert Maxwell like it needed him in 48. That makes more sense to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, they were um, putting the promise software out there themselves, but when they brought Robert Maxwell in, he like just had it all over the world because he was such a brilliant salesman. And they even used it to get nuclear secrets in America, I think. So that's how you know, useful he was at, at, around that time to them. So there is well, there's, there's some of that, but it's disputed. So yeah. So there is also the story of him um, um, shopping Mordecai Vanunu. So um, I don't know. Uh, your um, listeners, uh, viewers, will be will know all this stuff, but I'll explain it. To Please them. explain and, it. Yes. Uh, yeah. So Mordecai Vanunu was an Israeli nuclear uh, physicist who worked on Israel's bomb. He worried about what was what it was all ending up, and so um, he came to London and blew the whistle and told the Sunday Times, "Israel has got a bomb. It they built it in the desert, and it's um, it's real." And Israel was very angry with him for doing this, and they used a honey trap. A sexy Mossad woman got in touch with Vanunu. And she managed to, to convince him to come to Rome, where he was picked up by um, um, the rest of the Honey Trap team, and he was put onto a ship, and it sailed from Italy to Israel. And then Venuno spent what some two decades and more in prison. Um, the allegation made by um, two MPs was that Richard uh, Robert Maxwell had told, told the Israelis about Mordecai Vanunu. Now, Andrew Neal, um, who is a good journalist, uh, then at the time the editor of the, uh, of the Sunday Times, was mortified that um, his source had been picked up by the Israelis in this way and went out of his way to investigate. And Andrew Neal's conclusion was that this was not um, Robert Maxwell's fault. Um, Robert Maxwell was such an egomaniac that you can imagine him muddying the waters, but I, I, um, I believe Andrew Neal's account and the, the considered view of the Sunday Times that it wasn't Maxwell. Maxwell didn't know about the honey trap. It wasn't, he wasn't responsible for that. There are big questions about the uh, the judgment 
of the other guy who was involved, who was the Mirror um, edit, a foreign editor, a guy called Nick Davies, who was who his his office nickname was Sneaky, and he was a kind of Walter Mitty figure. Um, I knew him a little bit, and Sneaky sums him up completely. Would he give tidbits to so that? The way I think this world works is that somebody comes up to you and says, we're very interested in what you're doing, uh, and I work for um, an information company, and I don't say, hello, I'm Mossad. And you can't conclude that they're Mossad on the information they give you. And Nick Davis is the kind of person who would happily have, have helped somebody out like that without asking too many questions. Um, the, the 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 rule that we used to have on the Observer was a simple one when it comes to corrupt offers, which I like. Is you can have anything anyone gives it to you, gives to you, so long as you consume it yourself in twenty four hours. Which it's actually quite a lot of drink in in my case. You know, I mean, like, <laughs> it's a lunch or a dinner, um, but that's it. Or you know, it's not even a bottle of scotch, a half bottle. I can do that. A bottle of scotch on your own, that's a bit of a thing. A bottle of scotch with friends, that's okay. Mm. A case of wine is too much, I think. Mm. Two bottles is just about all right. But anything else, and you say, well, no, I'm not doing that. Uh, now, but, but again, there is no strong evidence that proves that Maxwell's um, connections with intelligence, I'm not disputing those, that those connections were major. And again, as I said, I think it's historic rather than uh, it was historic rather than active in 1991. I might be wrong. Okay, I got one or two more questions on Robert then before we move over to Galen. So, in the assassination of Robert Maxwell, they describe a Mossad operation whereby he's up on deck and a dinghy comes in below the radar, goes up, and they get him in the neck with a needle. So, my first question is in, in the autopsy, are there any such marks on his neck that could indicate something like a needle could have been in there? No. No. And Wes looks for them. He looks for puncture things. And they do... Um, the first um, the first uh, post-mortem happens in the Canaries. It's incompetent. It's incompetent because the people who do it don't have never done a, a big, hot... Um, um, post-mortem before the family are desperate for him to um, get buried quickly um, you can call that suspicious I think it's just they're, they're in a hurry um, there's a second post-mortem in Israel it's a bit of a mess but the guy who does it's very good he um, um, concludes it's probably suicide which helps the insurance companies because he, he's got a 20 million pound life policy but it's voided if it's suicide mm. and so when um when west professor west says it's suicide um it, it's uh, certainly the insurance companies who are paying for the post-mortem will be happy to, to read that but he's not saying murder um, um, but he's he's a home office pathologist he is not the kind of man who would cover up for uh, cover up on a murder? He isn't that kind of person, um, uh, as I understand his reputation. I believe he's dead now, but um, he. So I, there are no puncture wounds. Um, also, I mean, I I can't see why kill this guy. 
he's not sitting. He's not. He loves Israel, uh, and the, uh, at the end of his life, he doesn't want to do anything that's going to harm it. He doesn't, um, in my view, he his big problem is his financial empire is finished, and the wolves are at the gate. Yeah, in that book, the assassination of Maxwell, their premise is that Cosy's empire is melting down, and he's calling on his banking connections in the Mossad community and because they're not delivering and there's tension then arising between the two parties and he's they've just started to view him as a liability you could you he was uh, well I um I'm not thick with Goldman Sachs Goldman Sachs has once been described as a vampire squid clamped on the face of humanity uh, a lovely line. Who said but, that? Um, it was a writer um, for, I think, Mother Jones, whose name escaped me, but it's a wonderful line. A, um, a vampire squid clamped on the, on the face of humanity. I don't think that they run their business according to what Mossad tells them to do. It's a New York firm, and it worries about Goldman Sachs, number one. Are there people in it who are Jewish who will help out Mossad on occasion? I'm sure there are. I'm also sure that there will be people in it who are British and American who will help out the British and the Americans. The same go for the Germans. When, when their own personal interest or something like common decency applies, I don't think that Mossad would be able to tell Goldman Sachs it doesn't matter that he's stolen $59, $60 million. By the way, again, $60 million, which I think was what Goldman Sachs were looking for at that particular moment, they... That is not worth killing somebody like Robert Maxwell. It really isn't. And the banks were owed $2 billion, but different banks all over the place. And their reputations as good banks, banks is, were far, far more. So, And I think the way that the people that Mossad really worry about would be people like um, in Hezbollah, people who want to threaten um, like the Syrians, like... Um, like Saddam when he was alive, people who'd, who who had the potential to destroy the state of Israel. They're the people that Israel takes out, not a Jewish businessman who's in trouble. Okay, final question on his death then. So Ghislaine said that she believes he was assassinated. Have you researched what she has based that conclusion on? Yes, she says that he was murdered. She uses the word murdered rather than assassinated. And it's that knowing what he was as a life force, she can't believe he, he could have um, uh, committed uh, suicide. Kenny Lennox thinks the same way. Um, and I, I've seen uh, Kenny um, in various war zones and in various bars around the world. And I know, and, and I don't want to. Um, um, if you love somebody, it's very hard to think of them killing somebody. And so I understand why Gillen, by the way, I call, there's an argument about how to pronounce it. Gillen is the American trans, uh, pronunciation. We heard that it was Gillen, uh, uh, which I stick with. And, 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 we've, and we've got a French correspondent who pronounces it differently from everybody else. <laughs> so everyone's got their own version. Go with it. Um, um, so I'm not... I don't want to be critical of Gillen on um, as, as regards this. 
Uh, and as I said, uh, my friend uh, Richard Ingrams, who was sued as editor of Private Eye many, many times. There was a British gangster called Ronnie, uh, two gangsters called Ronnie and Reggie Cray. And there was a picture, they did a lookalike competition in Private Eye of Ronnie and, uh, I think Ronnie Cray and uh, Robert Maxwell. And they transposed uh, the two things and Maxwell sued. It was a joke. Um, but even Richard Ingrams says that he prefers the story that Maxwell was having a piss off the off the side of the boat and then fell off, and and I under, and I find that kind of sweet and generous of Richard to favour that, but there is no good evidence as to murder. Um, to be honest with you, we don't know, and there is a problem sometimes when with conspiracy theories is that when you don't know, you can erect a great big theory about something which doesn't mean that it works. Yes, he was connected with Mossad. I'm not disputing that. But w how big was the connection? How useful was he uh, to them? What's the point of killing somebody like him? I don't see it, and there's no good evidence for it. So Occam's razor, Occam was some monk who used to live in Surrey, a bit like you. And uh, with this accent, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, anyway, this Fish, month, chips and peas, love yeah, yeah, salt and vinegar. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Occam, um, which Occam's razor says, you know, um, cut it down. The most logical thing is not murder, it's suicide or accident. Uh, as I said, I th uh, Roy Greenslade, former mirror editor, says that he killed himself when the balance of his mind was undisturbed because he realized he was going to get ruined and he couldn't come back this time. And I agree with Roy that I think it's suicide. And, you know, we've got you here with a level-headed perspective versus some of the conspiracy theories going around. So this is good to balance everything out. All right, so you have meticulously described the rise and fall of Robert Maxwell. So now we're going to try and do a similar thing with Ghislaine. Uh, who is she? Well, she's, in the podcast, she's the fairy princess who ends up in a dungeon. Uh, and this is a dark, dark fairy story. She's very beautiful. She's very funny. She's charming. She has, to this day, uh, friends and family who are standing by her who are very loyal. It's very difficult to talk to people who know her well because they don't want to let her down. So... Um, so all of that's in the bank. There are various... Um... As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 
the, uh, Maxwell lost his oldest son, Michael, in a car crash, and it was awful. It rendered him in a coma. Basically, he was brain dead but alive. And he lived in a vegetative state for uh, some years. And How old he, was the son? Um, he was, I think he was 18 or 19. And then another um, child died of leukemia. But he had nine kids with Betty, so there were seven. Uh, and Gillette was born on Christmas Day, 1961. And I think the accident happened um, around the same time. And therefore, Gillette was the apple of her father's eye. And she was brought up in this wonderful gilded place, Eddington Hill Hall, which is, it was built by the Morells, who was a, a beer family, a big brewing dynasty. And one of the people, um, they had a big fancy ball in this lovely place. It's uh, built in, I think, the 1860s, and it looks like an Italian palazzo, the fashionable thing then. And one of the people who danced there was Oscar Wilde. And, I, and, and Oscar Wilde once said, everything in life is about sex. Apart from sex itself, that's about power. And some of the ways, or one way of explaining Shalane is that she took that completely to heart. I don't know whether, I would imagine she would have known it. But she became, um, um, uh, um, her dad loved her, spoiled her rotten. Um, there is this dark story from Eleanor Berry, which we discussed um, uh, um, earlier that her father uh, beat her in a way which feels very creepy. Um, I don't know if that story is true. What is true is that of all the children, he loved Shalane the most. But it's also true, and it's in Betty's book, that he would rage against Shalane too, and that he would get very, very angry with her too, and make lives miserable. And he would rage, and Betty says on several occasions, he would turn on Jelaine, even though he loved her. Um, somebody from the Mirror phoned me up. It's not in the podcast, uh, but he told me this story that Jelaine had, um, um, at the Labour Party conference, um, she went um, out drinking with this uh, guy and the other uh, execs of the Mirror. They had a dinner, and then they're having a drink late at night, and I've got a business meeting at eight o'clock tomorrow morning i'm very worried about missing it um and my mate said well get the hotel to give you an alarm call this is before mobile phones and she says i'm still worried and he said i've got an alarm clock i always carry it with me i'll go and get it he goes up to his hotel room brings it so she's and he said, i'm still worried i said all right i'll call you i'll call you at 7 30. so she's got three methods right the phone call from the hotel the mobile alarm clock, and my mate's going to ring her. All three happen. She says, thanks very much. Here's your alarm clock back. I'm having breakfast with my father. Now, I've got two kids, a, a son and a daughter, but uh, and both of them take the piss out of me like there's no tomorrow. But the idea that my daughter in particular would treat me with anything other than withering contempt, <laughs> or a bit love, obviously, but... But the idea that she would be so afraid of missing a, um, a breakfast meeting that you'd have that level of anxiety, uh, I thought was so sad. 
So it's a very, very strange relationship. And the problem, and we talk about this um, in episode six, Demons, is that if it felt at times that Robert Maxwell had a kind of cult of personality, and that's a phrase that um, um, Betty herself says, that we didn't stand up to Robert's cult of personality. Now, in, now, I'm not saying that Robert Maxwell was like the Church of Scientology. Are you a member of the Church of Scientology? We did have some Jehovah's Witness apostates <laughs> in here. I refrain from cults these days. <laughs> I went and did the little personality test, though, just to check them out, the Scientologists in London. And, and the, and They're still you, sending me letters to this day, Sean. Yeah. Yes, no. I'm a, a. If anybody watches it, you can see on YouTube. I'm not a. I'm not a fan of the Church of Scientology. Um, by the way, this looks like a cult. There are two. Um, there are two people here, and they laugh at all your jokes. And the, <laughs> otherwise, you can feel their fear. And the, otherwise, they're. Uh, and every now and then, they they but give the, you food. The biggest. The biggest <laughs> laugh of the night, though, was the. Uh, Unemployed geography dress. I'm dressed like an unemployed geography teacher. That was <laughs> well. No, no. We're so um, so. I was I was expecting this. I'd forgotten this was a studio. So I was. So anyway, I, I've uh, I've given up ironing my shirts, and I'd never iron my shirts anyway. But but Sean, to be fair, he looks like a really good upmarket bouncer uh, in a in a 1970s strip club in Witness. Uh, Whereas, uh, whereas, whereas I've come as an unemployed geography teacher. Did you frequent such establishments? Is that how you know this, John? No, 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 no. It's how I met your mum, Sean. Oh, and I wanted to say, no, 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 no. Who was my dad? Who brought, had you come on today? Oh, John, you can't. Oh. No, that's, that's, it's, it's unfair-ish. Let's put it like that. No, no, no. Anyway, um, but I don't, um, but um, what you can do in this awful environment, if you've got a, a narcissist like Robert Maxwell, what you can do is that you don't have a proper childhood. And if you're the, the child, and this is true of the boys too as well, um, that you become everything is about serving the father. Once the father died, the worry is, that she, Jelaine, went on to do, joined a second thing like a cult. Now, Epstein was different in that there weren't suckers on their knees um, giving him money for some kind of spiritual thing. But he had a very strange relationship with a, this guy, Les Wexner, who was the boss, the billionaire boss of um, Victoria's Secrets. And at the very end, before... Um, um, Epstein died, um, Les Wexner put out a statement saying, this man has stolen a lot of money, millions um, from me and my family, and I'd wish I'd never met him. I regret ever meeting him. So, but the full story is unexplained. Nevertheless, Epstein had this, um, and I've talked to a, a therapist who deals with people who've left the Church of Scientology in LA and the, the podcast, and she talks about this. What you've got is you don't have a kind of flock because of the Wexner money, because Epstein got, I think in 91, but certainly when Wexner was in, roughly, he was in his early 50s, something like 53, 
Wexner gave uh, Jeffrey Epstein power of attorney over his money, and his money was two, three billion dollars. So you know that's incredible. So so that you know what power of attorney means, it means that I've got control over um, everything. Now, I, Sean, I it would be foolish if you were to give me power of attorney, um, but I actually don't do that. But I mean, my mum gave it to us before she passed away. But she was like eighty or something like. That's when you do it when you when you fear that you're losing your marbles and you want to give it on to your kids. You don't do this to somebody, somebody in their fifties. That's weird. And he wasn't, you know, he's still alive. Which makes stuff. you think there's more to it. And did you see the shareholder lawsuit this week? What's the? No, I haven't seen that. No, what's that? Yeah, the shareholder lawsuit this week is alleging that Wexner's basically done a a PR stunt over this whole thing. And he and other directors of the limited were knowledgeable of what was actually happening, and yeah, it, it really details. Um, well, I well, I haven't, I haven't seen that. I'll, yeah. I'll look into that. I don't know. I don't know the uh, the evidence on that, and I uh, therefore I don't want to uh, talk about it. I, I would be to talk about it any length. I, I I'd want to see strong evidence of that. The difficulty uh, that I've got, common sense difficulty, is simple. And it holds true of virtually everybody who's in Jelaine's black book, which was also Jeffrey Epstein's black book, is the vast majority of people didn't know what was happening in the dark behind the scenes, which is the abuse of underage girls. Now, Jelaine herself denies this. She denies all the six charges against her. She denies any wrongdoing. I didn't do it. I didn't know what was going on. We won't know her exact defense until the trial starts, and it's slotted to start in July this year. Having said that, I think it's um, it. There's no strong evidence, or rather, there's no evidence um, of any value that this happened in plain sight for others to see. Obviously, what happened is that there is evidence that it happened in particular in Palm Beach. And also in the island, the problem is that those places were pretty private. So if you went to a party in Manhattan, you would see beautiful women, because beautiful women and Epstein went along, but there were 23-year-olds, not 14-year-olds. There's a huge difference. So that if um, the people in the Limited, Les Wexner, is accused of knowing about this other stuff, I am a little skeptical, well, I am skeptical, because that goes against the run of the evidence that I've seen in the public domain. So we interviewed Maria Farmer, I think it was the last one before she was legally gagged, and she said that she was assaulted by both Epstein and Maxwell at the Wexner property, and she spoke to Wexner's wife, and when she tried to leave there, as well as Wexner's personal security, she thought they, they were going to kill her, that when she called the cops... Cops basically said, well, you know, half our department work at Wexner's Gate. Good luck. <laughs> yes. Well, uh, um, that's all. Um, that The problem is that in terms of the cultishness, Jeffrey Epstein seemed to have a hold over Wexner, for example, the power of attorney. And there are other um, arguments. Uh, people say but he's very manipulative. So one of the people... I spoke to was um, Hoffenberg. Have you have you had a chat with him? We've got Hoffenberg coming on in a couple of days, actually. Yes. So he's so 
he's fascinating. Um, and what he said was uh, to me that there's evidence that Robert Maxwell was money laundering. Sorry, that Epstein was money laundering for uh, Robert Maxwell. You know this, and Steve Hoffenberg is very open about it, but Steve Hoffenberg himself went to prison for the biggest Ponzi scheme uh, in, in America at the time. Now, um, uh, and he went to prison for, I think, two decades or 18 years. It's a long, long time. And Hoffenberg's source is uh, Ari Ben-Manashi, who did work for Israeli uh, intelligence. I have interviewed him. And, and has subsequently um, been described as a fantasist by other people, um, in, including good reporters. So there is. So w one way of looking at this story is this story may be true that Epstein uh, money laundered for Robert Maxwell. It may be true. But the source of it and this iteration is um, a, a man, uh, a convicted fraudster who's quoting what some people call a fantasist. That's not great. I would love to see paperwork from a bank, a bank statement showing that Epstein money laundering Robert Maxwell's money. I would love to see a photograph of the two of them together. As far as I know, um, I'm, I'm sure this can be photoshopped right now. That's what these two are doing. Uh, they, uh, they're not <laughs> while serving the cult. By the way, I'm going to ask them, is this a cult? Is he your messiah? Is Sean your messiah? They're both, I'm working they're, on it. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, to be fair, it looks as though they're very ready to take the piss out of it. Uh, uh, I think that, uh, that's a, it's not a cult. You're we're, all right. Anyway, we're, we're all our own messiahs. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, everyone speak, is the center of their own universe. Speak for yourself. Uh, <laughs> I, I, know, I know one thing. Having lost my temper at the Church of uh, Scientology, I'm no messiah. I'm no messiah. Um, but uh, I know my limitations, and I'm not a messiah. I'm just a very naughty boy. Um, but. So going back to the thing, um, I so I don't think the evidence is good on that. I do think that there's a lot of evidence, but Hoffenberg says this himself: is that there's a clip of Trump and um, uh, and Epstein with Jelen in the background in '92 at Mar-a-Lago, and the thing about it that's really striking is that, that there are some. Uh, women, it's 92, there are women with kind of bubble hair and uh, Trump sort of ogling them in a kind of yucky kind of Trump way. And then Epstein turns up uh, and behind uh, the camera captures Jelaine for a second or two. This is one year after her father's uh, died. There are mirror pensions that are still very angry. Her two brothers are being, um, are being investigated and then are subsequently tried for stealing money, for defrauding the pension pensioners 400 million pounds they're both acquitted eventually in 96 but nevertheless she doesn't want to be on camera the fascinating thing that Hoffenberg turns to is that they that Trump seems to defer to Epstein and this is the man you know like he's a monstrous narcissist Trump and he's deferring to Epstein and playing nice with him it's kind of fascinating um, and, and, and so I think what you've got is that if Maria Farmer said to Wexner's people, I was sexually assaulted, 
I can imagine Epstein saying, oh, that's not true. And then believing Epstein against the word of this one woman. Now, I, 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 but I don't know. All I do know for a fact is that at the end of the game, uh, Wexton wakes up and says, this man stole money from me. And I don't think that he's told the public enough about his association with Epstein, and it's not good enough. And I, for one, would not shop in Victoria's Secret. So some people have said then that an old throat-slitting multi-billionaire like Wexner would not let you know, a younger um, person, hustler, pick his pocket. I don't think throat slitting is a good description of Wexner. I think he's an astute businessman, but there are some people who can be very astute businessmen and a bit rubbish with um, with uh, the rest of, of the thing. So, so my podcast at one point was number one in Britain on the on the Apple podcast chart, but I also put up a picture of my spaghetti bolognese, and it was terrible, and everybody laughed at it. And I've put it, I've, I, ha I keep on saying I'm terribly sorry. I'm actually saying it now in Italian. Mio dispiace, il mio italiano, il mio whatever cooking, um, cucinare è pessimo, francamente. My cooking's crap, frankly. So I'm a couldn't be a good reporter, but I'm a rubbish chef. Fine, I but don't you're a throat slitter in the podcasting world. Uh, I'm no, uh, um, uh, no, I'm not because <laughs> that's I, a number one spot. That's I, pretty no, no, impressive. I, I, I have slit no throats, uh, <laughs> I, and I, I'm not in favour of throat slitting <laughs> because it's not interesting enough. Weirdly, I, I'd say something different. I'd say that that, for example, the Netflix documentary "Filthy Rich" portray it, it doesn't spend much time on Gillette and what it does is it, it it shows it sets out the evidence she's a horrible person that may well be true but it's not the whole story and what our podcast sets out is a bit of sympathy for her because her father was so bad that's not a get out of jail card but it is not throat slitting to say that somebody if she if she was a victim for the first thirty years of her life where her father was alive, you've got to understand that, and it kind of makes the world uh, or what happened more comprehensible than um, than a throat slitter. And that's what we're trying to do is understand the psychology behind her and what what brought her into yes, this yes yes Epstein's orbit. So, but my my reading of Wexner is that he is. Um, he may be a very successful businessman, but he's somebody who was gulled by Epstein. Now, there are accusations that he had a gay relationship with Epstein. Uh, I, I, again, I don't know uh, the truth of that. There are two. There are two reporters who've spoken about it to me, um, and it doesn't quite fit what I know about Epstein. Um, but you can have a relationship, or rather, you can uh, uh, people. A powerful man like Wexner could have some kind of non-sexual, asexual um, crush on somebody like Epstein because he's super manipulative. People say, by the way, that the Jelaine was super manipulative herself; that she could be very, very powerful. Remember, she is her father's daughter, but. When Epstein was around, it was he who manipulated her. 
So, and also because she's been brought up in the way she has, her father has been kind of cultish, this cult of personality thing I've been talking about, that she's lost her moral compass. Doesn't, it's not that she's lost her moral compass, she didn't have one in the first place. So she doesn't know when going along with what Epstein's accused of doing that it's actually completely wrong because you're screwing the lives of these poor girls up. Once again, she denies it. She denies all six charges. How do you believe that she met Epstein? It's not clear. There is um, stuff on the internet. There's a photograph of her at with Epstein. She's wearing a blue... Um, kind of top um looks i've forgotten this i'm rubbish at um what women wear um but anyway she's wearing a blue top and she's captivated by him and they look uh, by epstein and they look like two people who are lovers or about to be lovers and the picture is and there's jack lemon um is it jack lemon no it's the guy from the odd couple what's the name of the other not the walter um, the uh, the craggy one, but the other guy in the in the odd couple TV series. Come on, guys, is it is it Jack Lemon? It is Jack Lemon. Okay, so it's Jack Lemon who is sat like a kind of gooseberry with these three. Is it? And and, and the suggestion is this is out of memorials, Robert Maxwell, in New York. Now the problem is that it's roughly the same time that he becomes disgraced. So we don't. Uh, and and there is a picture separately of Betty Maxwell um, at that memorial, which took place at the Trump Hotel in New York in, um, um, I think, late November 1991. So that is the first suggestion of them together. But there isn't a picture of Ghislaine and Robert Maxwell placing her in that dress, in that place at that moment, which is why I'm being wary. And then separately, um, there's a report in the Mail on Sunday. It's a gossip column about her and Jeffrey Epstein sometime in 1992, I think almost a year on. But it's, it's several months on, and that they're an item then. And according to the feds um, in the charges by the FBI against Ghislaine Maxwell, they were lovers from 94 to 97, or that's what the charges relate to. We know that she she's we know from other bits and pieces that that they have they stopped being lovers sometime i think in the 90s and epstein starts dating other older women as well as what he's also doing but Ghislaine is still there as a presence in his life up till 2005 the last time there is a picture of the two of them together is in 2005 there's there are she takes a couple of flights, I think up to 2007. He pays her legal bills for things that she's basically, it's cases against him and she's involved with them. So you, I can understand her saying, well, I'm, he's just he's kind of defending me, whatever, out of duty or, or some kind of um, employer thing. I don't know. But what we know from a fact is the relationship is starts in 1992, according to the Man on Sunday, last photo 2005. Within that, they're lovers for a shorter period from something like, I would guess, 92 to 97. Okay, what is the 
psychology of Epstein then? What shaped him into this behavior? I don't know. I don't know. My guess is that he was... Something bad happened to him when he was a kid. And he had a horrible streak of of vengeance against 14, 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds, mm. which is weird. There's a technical term for it. It's not... I, I call him a paedophile because that's what it means. Because these girls are more child than woman, but they are post-puberty. And the actual technical term for it is hebophile. Hebophile. Yeah, I didn't go there, but it's a hebophile. But basically, it's 14, 15, 16 years old. Some of them with braces on their teeth. And, and as I said, the thing that kind of keeps on haunting me is this: these awful glass eyes on his entrance hall um that's about there's some kind of psychological sadism there there is um if you um sort of analyze the pattern of the women who are making the complaints against him these they are classically 14 15 16 year old most of the ones are in palm beach they are white don't have tattoos they are naive he doesn't like i mean there are 16 year olds who are very worldly, he he doesn't want those. He wants somebody who's a bit shocked by all of this or something like it. And and he repeats again and again and again. And what reporters who went to court uh, after Epstein died said that, that what was striking was they all looked the same. Uh, I mean, they're all 40 now because of the passage of time. But basically, obviously attractive women, um, many of them poor, um, and what's awful about it is the industrial scale of this. Now, I've done a massacre, for example, in Kosovo. I reported it, um, and I've um, given evidence in three trials, two at The Hague, one in Kosovo, against people who killed 100 men and boys. Now, that's a massacre. That's a war crime. This is different. And you could take individual cases and say, well, it wasn't too bad. But actually, it happened again and again and again. And that's the sick and dark thing about it. Jelen's role, she denies it. Her role, the, the, the allegation is that she facilitated this. And my, in my, as fair as I'm trying to be, I find it impossible to understand how if, you, if you're lovers with somebody and know them as intimately as, you, as your lover, if you spend all the time with them, if you fly with them again and again and again, if you're running his diary, which he was, and the diary's complicated. Uh, it's it doubly complicated because there are four homes uh, there's Manhattan, there's Palm Beach, there's the island, and then there's New Mexico. Uh, later, there's a place in France, but we're running with four homes. You're dealing with people like Bill Clinton and Prince Andrew and Donald Trump, all of whom are very powerful and have got their own schedules and diaries and all of that. And massages are being arranged for Jeffrey Epstein on an industrial basis, in particular in Palm Beach, and then also on the island. And she's running his diary, and she doesn't know what's going on. I find that impossible to believe. So I think the com I find the evidence against her is compelling. I think it's damning. As I said, she denies it, and we won't know what her defence is until the trial starts. So we've got Maria saying that she was assaulted by Ghislaine. We've got Virginia saying the same thing. My impression is that she was in love with Epstein. 
And there's a saying that most women are in prison because of men, one way or another. Yes. Do you think that he capitalized on that love to indoctrinate her into the world of procurement and participation? Yes. I think that's what happened. I think that, um, but the other thing he did was it became a joke because what was happening, if you look at it plainly and clearly, is wrong. Um, and it was very wrong. Her problem was that because of her upbringing under her father, she didn't have a moral compass. Other people, it doesn't matter about other people, you can piss on them. If I go to the toilet and use a, um, a cloth towel, I can just leave it there because the other person who's got to pick it up, they don't matter. And if that is your upbringing, then um, where's the moral compass that says, don't do this? But what Epstein would have been very good at would have been to have, to have turned this into a joke, turned this into a game. Also, there's something else that's going on, which I touch on briefly, but he was a transhumanist. Now, I, uh, I'm... Um, transhumanism believes that um, humanity is evolving into a higher state and it's obsessed with the brain and um, how essentially, you know, there are people who are going to be uber brainy who exist on a higher plane. And there are, there's been some reporting that Epstein wanted to impregnate lots and lots of women with his with his sperm because he was some kind of super superman. Now, this is Nazi stuff in my book. It's gibberish. It's not um, it's not anything like proper science whatsoever. It's a load of Nazi wank in plain English, and I hate it. And it's very very creepy. Number one, if Epstein is a superhuman. Well, what about the other people? What about the poor girls he's preying on? What about the the people who pay ordinary taxes so that we can live our lives in the civilized way we do? If you never pay taxes, if you always organize your money in a fancy way, then that's just wrong. And and I can and and actually it's a bit Nazi. And 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 Epstein, of course, was fr from a Jewish family. And and I and I wrestle um with this thing in particular but it's possible um and but epstein was into it and talked about it um a lot um so that as humans we're naturally driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed when i was looking to hire someone it was so slow and overwhelming I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
that also is cultish because to have a cult you've got to have a messiah um you've got to have some kind of brainwashing and informed by this gibberish the transhumanism and the third thing is does it do harm it does harm tick 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 so now there's somebody else in this um whose name um you 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 may well know this sean the there was a woman who was a Jehovah's Witness who ends up working for um, Jeffrey Epstein. Is one of Jelan's lieutenants. Can't remember her name. And she was she married at one point. The marriage didn't last long, but she married a man called Noah Bonk, and she was um, Mrs. Bonk for uh, for a bit. I try and do that with a straight face. Her name. She was a Jehovah's Witness. She's in the podcast. Um, anyway, she left the church. She left her family, um, and her family um, shunned her because as a young artist um, and model, she did some um, life modeling um, for an art class to earn a bit of money. And her, her family thought this was immoral because they were Jehovah's Witness. And she ends up working for Jelaine, under Jelaine, working for Epstein. And um, Michelle Lacata is uh, the victim I've spoken to the most. And Michelle um, um, was introduced to Jeffrey Epstein by this woman, a former member of the Jehovah's Witness. Again, this is, I'm not saying it's a classic cult, but it's cultish in that you've got two people in it. Jelaine through her father's kind of cult of personality and this other woman, um, a former member of the Jehovah's Witnesses, who's there and they're serving this guy who believes he's some kind of messiah, who's talking to brain scientists who, th who were telling him that his brain's better. And really what this is about is it's a justification for narcissism and it's wrong. Yeah, and Virginia got out just in time because they were having her try and sign papers to hand over a baby and that's the moment where virginia's and poor virginia she was i think she was abused by some ghastly family friend i've never met her but um i read the story that she was abused by a family friend um when she was seven eight or nine she fled the family she ended up uh, being fostered, it, um, it didn't work. Fostered again, it didn't work. She ran away. Um, uh, 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 some kind of paedophile found her when he was 63, 64. Um, she, uh, the FBI uh, arrested him. She went back to her father. Her father was working at Trump's Mar-a-Lago. She gets the job, Jeffrey Epstein. Not Jeffrey Epstein, Jillen finds her. Then what happens is that she um, um, is subsumed in this world. She says that Prince Andrew, she was required to have sex with Prince Andrew. Prince Andrew denies it. Then um, you're left with, um, um, you know, an awful mess. And the moment when they say, well, they want her to be a, a surrogate baby mother. And she says, I'm out. I'm out. And that's the moment where I think, and, and uh, having done stories about Scientology, it's the moment when somebody who's deep inside a cult can go, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. 
and Virginia runs and good on her. By the way, there's something striking, Sean, that you know this, I'm sure, but the charges relate, they start in 1994 on the, the, the uh, four cases of effective uh, uh, sort of trafficking or enticing young girls uh, for, uh, for sex with Epstein, and they stop in 1997. That's before uh, Virginia Roberts Ufre is in the picture. So if those charges apply and on their own, Virginia Roberts Ufre isn't part of the trial. That also means that Prince Andrew isn't part of the trial. Now I've been talking to other reporters about this, and the the best explanation is available at the moment is it's strange and striking, and I don't understand it. And there is something unexplained about the relationship between Gillan and the FBI. I don't know. One explanation is that there are the other two charges about perjury. The perjury relates to what I think Gillan said. I what Gillan said um, in a trial, a civil trial in 2016, brought, brought by some of the other um, um, uh, some of the victims, the Epstein victims. And she said, I never, I've never given, there was no sexualized massages. I've never done this. I've never done this. And the feds have got something. Now, my one hypothesis, which I suggest in the podcast, um, in episode six in Demons, is they may have tapes, the blackmail tapes. They may have them. And I'm speculating here. I don't know. But one possibility is that the, uh, Jeffrey Epstein's blackmail machinery might have caught Jolene. Another thing is that there is a piece of paper or a document or some other piece of evidence which makes her out to be uh, a perjurer. All I'm looking at is what I know in the public domain. And in the public domain, there is this. There is only, um, um, if, for example, uh, there, there are three charges against free women. The one I know about is um, Annie Farmer. This is in New Mexico, and there are three people in the room, Jeffrey Epstein, Gillen, and Annie Farmer. Annie Farmer is, um, she's going for it. She's very tough on the pre-bail um, stuff. There was an argument, and she's a strong witness. But she was 16 at the time, and it's her word against Gillen, and Epstein is dead. So it's weird to me to charge Gillen with perjury unless the feds have got something else. I don't know what the feds have got, but they've got something else up their sleeve. We'll find out in July. All right, you've touched on Prince Andrew then. How did Maxwell's relationship with Prince Andrew come about? I'm kind of, I'm looking at the time. When should we stop? Because I need to go and have dinner with Prince Andrew tonight. (laughs) (laughs) How much time have you got? That's a joke. I think let's talk to, let's stop at set. Well, how long do you want? Uh, another half an hour, another 10 minutes, another 20 minutes? Well, however, however generous I'm with your time you would like to be, we will accommodate you. I will, <laughs> uh, I will stop at, um, I will stop at seven because I've got to, um, I've got to drive back to London and, uh, yeah, yeah, that's and, absolutely and then, fine. Yeah. And then, uh, and seven o'clock. Do you want to take a break? Have a wee or anything? No, 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 I'm fine. Okay. I, uh, I'm, I'm just, um, no, let, let's stop at seven and, uh, uh, because seven is drink o'clock. Okay. Um, but I've got to drive then drink o'clock. Anyway, yes. Yeah, so Prince Andrew, so Prince Andrew denies it. Um, and as I said earlier, um, 
all virtually all the people in the black book have no idea of what's happening behind the scenes the 14 15 year old 16 year olds they don't see they come in the middle of the day to palm beach they don't happen in manhattan nothing happens in manhattan my speculation my working hypothesis is that people in new york are street smart and even if you're a poor working class 14 15 year old 16 year old from new jersey the moment you turn up in a mansion in Manhattan and something weird's going on, then you know you you know who to call. You know how the world works. That is not the same in Florida or in New Mexico. Um, so that so that um, he was he was clever enough um, to do that. Looking at Prince Andrew, Prince Andrew cannot explain the picture of him with his arm round Virginia Roberts Euphre. Shot story goes by Jeffrey Epstein in Julianne Maxwell's flat. We went and filmed there, didn't we, James? Yep, in the in the, in the street, and you see the um um I, I don't know. Did the we, door... we got them to open the door? Yeah, and we, and... Got, we filmed the banister. Yeah, 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 and the banister is white. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. So that um, Prince Andrew can't explain that. Now I used to work for Newsnight, um, and I thought. Emily Maitlis's interview with Prince Andrew was an extraordinarily brilliant piece of journalism. And, and Prince Andrew reminded me of a freshly slaughtered cod landing on, <laughs> landing on the fishmonger's slab. He couldn't, he couldn't explain what had happened. Yeah. And it didn't make sense to me. And, and, and I didn't believe him. The sweat stuff. So in the podcast, I... Um, I, uh, you know, there's this guy I bump into in the pub and he tells me where well, he doesn't buy it. And I said, well, you're just some geezer I met in the pub. And he says, well, that is true to some extent. But, and then he, uh, he's Professor Ashley Grossman, Professor of Neuroendocrinology at Oxford University, Professor of Medicine, written more than a thousand papers, mainly about um, the hormonal um, imbalances that, that flow from neuroendocrinological errors in the human body, some of them about sweating. He's never come across a case ever where somebody doesn't sweat due to trauma. What happens is you don't sweat if you have no sweat, gland, sweat glands from birth. That's the thing. It's not very common. But what Andrew said was, I was in the Falklands War, I was shot at, and then I can't sweat doesn't make any sense to the professor of sweating at Oxford University. And it makes no sense to me whatsoever. So he's, and I wrestle with it because I think, is he thick or what? But I, I've looked also into the, into the money and what you're left with is, um, uh, I'm afraid a damning conclusion about Prince Andrew is that he, feels himself to be so entitled he doesn't get what's right and wrong and he doesn't get what's right and wrong about money so he has done a number of things um which are wrong in terms of money and that includes um abusing his position then you've got his story about virginia roberts Jufre. it doesn't make sense this is at the time, so at the time in 2000, um, and literally it's the year 2000, I think, 
they get the royal flush. So uh, Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell uh, go to Windsor Castle, Buckingham Palace, Balmoral, and Sandringham. There is a picture taken in 2002 of Ghislaine Maxwell sitting on the throne of the Queen of England in the throne room in Buckingham Palace. The only person who could have made that happen is Prince Andrew. What Prince Andrew is doing is giving them a good time. What's he getting in return? I don't know. But he's got to explain, he's got to do better to explain what he's doing with his arm around Virginia Robert Shufre. Then, um, back, um, so what happens is, moving the story forward, in 2008, Finally, um, the um, Jeffrey Epstein's prosecuted, but he's prosecuted in what's called a sweetheart deal. Basically, it's two charges: one, um, um, sex with an underage prostitute, um, and the other, a, a similar charge without mention of underage. And this is a uh, this is this is a dirty and disgraceful deal because. The Miami Herald's wonderful Julie K. Brown digs up something like 80 kids who have been abused by Epstein in Palm Beach. Before we get onto that case, how did Maxwell and Prince Andrew form a relationship in the first place? They first met, it's not, so how did you learn? They met in the 80s on the party scene. Ah. So um, I, I don't know. So. When the Falklands is what nineteen eighty two, was she still at university then? She was at university. Um, from I think she was at university um, f- in the early eighties. She did modern languages, French and Spanish. I think majoring in, in so she spent a year in Madrid, I think, or in Spain um, at, at Oxford Balliol College, um, and. Got to, and by that point, Prince Andrew was a war hero. He'd done um, great service and was brave and was good. Fair play to him then for that um, in 1982. And they bumped into each other in the party scene and have been friends since. Because we interviewed Paul Page, who was one of Prince Andrew's Royal Protection Officers, and he described Prince Andrew as just being an absolute a-hole when people were coming to visit him, he'd get on the phone and be like, don't you know that person's coming to fucking see, let her through. And Maxwell would just go through without doing the proper security protocol. Yes. They were tight then. So uh, they were tight. Um, So um, uh, I've been married twice. My my second ex, who's good, uh, I'm I'm good friends with both my ex-wives, I don't know why, Um, but she... um, she was at LSC as a late entry student. She screwed up her A levels, and after a bit, um, went back uh, to LSE to get a degree so she could advance her, her career in TV, and was a star pupil, and was actually got on well with the then director of the LSC, um, who said, um, "We're introdu- We've got a special guest. Um, we're going to introduce um, um, uh, our special, our favourite students, or some of our." top students um and she was one of them she was the chair of the international relations society 
and she was uh, 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 also a beautiful blonde woman. And and there's Prince Andrew and uh, ten other students, uh, some of whom are you know, some of the most brilliant students on earth. And my my ex, who, she, her name's Tamiko, but uh, she's got a, uh, a Japanese name, but she's English, originally from Manchester, born in a Manchester uh, council uh, flat. And um, she thought, oh, God, he's awful, this guy. And um, and he was, because she's an attractive woman, he was kind of fixated with her. And there were all these clever, you know, super clever people around. And eventually, you know, it was it became embarrassing. And she said, "Listen, I'm sorry, I've got to go. There's a really interesting lecture on economics. I've got to go to, <laughs> like, like, because so she could run away from him. Wow. And 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 everything. And and she thought he was entitled and dim. She's not convinced that he is as bad because she thought she was so dim that, that he's. He's so thick that he might be innocent, but have just done everything wrong to explain that uh, to him. She's not excluding that. I see it darker. I see it darker. Um, but anyway, that's how those two are thick. When you say you see it darker, what do you mean by that? I find, um, well, I don't understand why he's got his hand around Virginia Roberts Shufre. I think the picture is real. I don't think it was photoshopped. And the, the there was a photographer from the Mail on Sunday explained its history. And that struck, struck me as basically he was given a roll of film which he developed, or rather there was there was a wad of pictures which had been developed and it was in the middle one. Like and no one was sophisticated enough to do that in a it was for a real thing which he found when they did the story back in 2011 and the allegations about photoshopping have, have only popped up recently. Secondly, the thing about sweating makes no sense. If that's his fucking alibi, it's ridiculous. It doesn't make sense, says my friend, the professor of sweating at Oxford University. Did you see all the pictures coming up on Twitter? Yes. Simultaneously yeah. yes. throughout each lie. Yes. No, it was just absurd. And, and, then, there is, um, and then there's the money, which is I mean, the reason why I'm jumping forward is to explain... The thing which I think is really dark is that in December 2010, Prince Andrew stays with Jeffrey Epstein in the house of Manhattan when Jeffrey Epstein is a convicted paedophile. Why on earth is the second son of the Queen of England, a prince, a member of the royal family, staying there? He could stay in a hotel. And when I go to Manhattan for work, or when I was working at the BBC, we'd be put up in a, in a really you know terrible hotel in Manhattan but you can find them, and you can find them for about $150 a night. Now, um, that's where he should have stayed. Or the Consul General, which is, has got a house there. It's a British government official working for the Foreign Office, and that is where the British Prime Minister, Foreign Ministers, Foreign Secretary, other ministers, members of the royal family stay when they're in Manhattan on official business. That's what could have happened. Wasn't his official excuse that he was going to break off the relationship with Epstein, but it has come out that he was the guest of honour for Epstein's uh, party? It's bollocks. Yeah. It's bollocks. It's complete bollocks. I, I mean, I, I have... Is he thick or what? <laughs> I have no sympathy for this whatsoever. I think if that was peddled in a magistrate court, you know, in witness, or when I was on the Sheffield Telegraph all those millions of years ago, you know, he would be laughed out of court. 
you know, dear, oh dear. You know, my client is a young man with a future. No, it's nonsense. They weren't lovers, as far as I know. Um, I'm not sorry. I'm not hinting anything there. They weren't lovers. You don't say, you know, you just phone them up. Or you don't even do it. You just get your equity to block the calls. I don't want to talk to you anymore. You're a convicted paedophile. What happens then down the track is that him and Sarah Ferguson, the Duchess of York, Duchess of York, buy a, 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 an £18 million skiing chalet in Verbier. Now, I've been skiing once in Switzerland with my daughter. We went, um, we were in Italy and we skied across to Switzerland. We bought some cheese toasties. They call them fondue. <laughs> and it cost, it cost, you know, it cost more than my bloody car cost. Or not quite, but not far off. And, and I, you know, I'm never going to buy a, a cheese toastie in Switzerland ever again. So if you're buying a ski chalet, don't buy one in Switzerland. Actually, don't buy a ski chalet. You know, rent one like everybody else. But this is eighteen million pounds, and the significance of this, Sean, is simple: is that, um, and by the way, it was forty million on a mortgage and four million which was owed, and they've never actually paid it to the owner of the ski chalet. So who, she's now suing them for the missing four million. Those two have lived together in the same house since two thousand and eight: Sarah Ferguson and Prince Andrew. So. It's been reported that she was in debt to something like five million in 2010. And this has been reduced to two million, but she's in debt. She's run up a lot of stupid legal bills um, uh, with American lawyers, foolish of her. My friend Andrew Morton said he's got a cartoon of, uh, uh, you know, he says that Fergie's terrible with money. And um, there's a cartoon of her holding a fiver going, but I'm sure I left with 50,000 this morning. And anyway, <laughs> what happens is that he, um, Epstein, helps Ferguson reduce her debt. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. 15,000 pounds is the number we know about. The 15,000 pounds is money that she owes maybe 2 million, it's reduced down by 15,000 pounds for Epstein. I don't know whether that number's bigger. I suspect it might be, and I've asked uh, the palace, and the, I heard from the PR company working for the prince's lawyers, um, uh, Prince Andrew's lawyers, um, that this they're not a financial unit. My contention is, yes, they are so a financial unit and have been one because they live in the same house and have been doing so since 2008. So therefore, effectively, Prince Andrew, the Duke of York, has been a beneficiary of Epstein's money mm. because he helped reduce Sarah Ferguson's debt. That's very interesting. And so what you've got is 2010, Sarah Ferguson is reportedly 5 million in debt, maybe 2 million in debt. She owes money. December 2010, Prince Andrew stays in the house and then there's the picture in the park. Then you have the debt reduced by £15,000 or a sum greater. I think that very likely. I don't know. I can't 15K prove it. 15K would be irrelevant to them, wouldn't it? It would. But you add a couple of noughts and then we're talking. Then together, the two of them in 2014, having been £2 million in debt, 
buy an £18 million house together. They buy it together. The palace or the PR company for Prince Andrew have confirmed that. So the question is, what happened in December 2010? Was this a kind of reputation laundering? But what was going on was that Prince Andrew, by seen to be in public walking in the park with Jeffrey Epstein, was washing his dirty reputation, mm. was making him seem less bad, and in return, money went in effectively benefiting Prince Andrew and also, obviously, Sarah Ferguson by reducing her debt. Everybody has their price. How much is a prince worth is the question I would have asked. Were you paid, Prince of York, Duke of Andrew, whatever you're called, were you paid is the question that Emily Maitlis didn't ask. I understand why because, well, I'm not sure I do understand that. I think that's the question I would have asked. It's a good question, but the, the official version, he was breaking off a friendship, doesn't make sense. And, and uh, the picture, if you follow the money, the picture looks dreadful. Who introduced Epstein to Andrew? Um, the story is that it's, the, it's uh, Sir Evelyn de Rothschild and his, I think, American wife. I've seen that reported. I don't know. Quite quickly, Epstein and Jelen are a thing, and Andrew and Jelen are a thing. The first time that we know about it, the um, first indication of um, a big friendship is in 98, when Sarah Ferguson, um, who is friendly with Prince Andrew at this point, but they're not living together, um, is seen with her kids um, by on the flight log. She pops up on the flight log. Um, they meet um, uh, private jets, both land um, in um, in um, in the Bahamas. I'm trying. What's the capital of the Bahamas? Is it um, Nassau? I've forgotten. Uh, anyway, uh, the capital of the Bahamas, and then ninety nine. Prince Andrew goes to the. Um, I think the. I think he goes to. He goes on the what they call the. Um, um, Lolita Express. He goes, I think, to Palm Beach, and I think he goes to the island. Two thousand. He's all. He's all around all the royal houses. So, I, I, it's a terrible thing. Um, it's possible he didn't know what was going on. I find it difficult. I find the evidence against him damning in relation to Virginia Roberts Dufresne, and I think the um, him visiting. Um, the home and staying at the home of a convicted paedophile when he didn't have to, disgraceful. So the Prince Andrew thing has just been in the news constantly. And it's kind of put the Clintons on the back burner. What do you believe the relationship between the Clintons and Epstein and Maxwell was? Who knows? I don't... Um, a significant... I... Um, I don't like Trump. I quite like Clinton's politics, but I don't like Clinton. Um, of the two, there are no complaints by any of the 14, 15, 16-year-olds against them. And therefore, I think that both of them don't like um, 14, 15, 16-year-olds. It's just wrong. 
and it's not exciting for them. They don't want to do it. It's Epstein's thing, not theirs. So the reason why there's no strong, there are no complaints by the by the by the um, these kids is because nothing bad happened in relation to them. Did Epstein's provide a place where Bill Clinton or Donald Trump could shag people they shouldn't be shagging? I find that very likely, but they would have been 20-plus. Um, um, I find that very, very likely. So, um, um, but Clinton... Um, most of the time, Epstein was more um, more of a Democrat. Um, he hang out with that kind of crowd. Clinton is a you know um, massively charismatic man, but the thing you can say about both of them um, um, is that they are not naive. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Both Trump and Clinton are not naive. They're very, very smart people who, I mean, street smart. You know, they would, they would have done well in your school in, um, in Widnes, you know, no doubt. Um, they would have done, you went to prison in, in um, with, Arizona prison. Yeah, you went to, anyway. Um, they would have survived Arizona prison. They, <laughs> Uh, one of my friends, Chris Atkins, who ended up, um, um, he ended up in Wandsworth. And he was a BBC, he was a freelance uh, TV producer who produced panoramas. So he was a panorama producer. And he got in bed with bad money and he ended up uh, being done for tax fraud for five years and went to Wandsworth Nick for nine months. And he said, listen, John, you know, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Trump would have done fine in Wandsworth. And, <laughs> and so would Clinton. So these people would survive. But what I find weird and um, disturbing is if they knew Epstein and they're smart, then wh why don't they, why don't they, why doesn't their radar tell them there's something wrong going on? And there's a difference in between most of the people in the black book um, go to uh, swanky parties in Manhattan. They don't get to the island. If you get to the island or you get to Palm Beach, that's a different level of intimacy. And then it becomes more disturbing. As I said, I'm not saying, but I've, there's no evidence, there are no complaints um, by the 14, 15, 16 year olds about um, abuse by uh, Clinton and, um, and Trump uh, of any quality. There's no good evidence on that. My deduction is they didn't do it because it wasn't their thing. But the, the, what you're left with is 
they did they observe nothing in their friendship trump did though of course because trump said to new york magazine i think it's in 2002 uh, yeah jeffrey's a great guy and it's even said that he likes beautiful women as much as i do though some of them are on the younger side what's that mean donald trump what did you know and when did you know it what about the role then of Jean-Luc Brunel in all of this? Because we saw his arrest recently. Yes, that was super exciting. Um, so the allegation we have against Brunel is that he's been, um, uh, that he, that Epstein slept with a thousand of his models. He's been a, a basically a, um, a sex pervert for, um, he's been accused of being a, a sexual predator for 20 years uh, and I think it's I think it says something dark about Fran France's um, culture towards sexual predation uh, that he's only just been arrested um, obviously he denies it um, so we'll have to see what happens uh, in his trial but um, he was the evidence is strong that he was a facilitator I think I'm right in thinking that that his there is a in French law there is a cutout that offences don't go back past twenty years, and if the time frame that the feds are looking at against Yolanda ninety four to ninety seven that cuts out. However, there is a qualification to the French law of no prosecution after twenty years in relation to minors. So it's possible that um, Jean-Luc Brunel may end up causing trouble for Jelan in court. I don't know. But at the moment, there is no evidence um, it relating to him which um, are uh, related charges against Jelan Maxwell. Does this therefore mean that just like the US authorities have asked Andrew to cooperate with them, the French authorities could ask Andrew to cooperate with them for the case of Jean-Luc Brunel? It's possible. Um, th there has been no... Um, that's possible. I haven't seen any evidence that puts Andrew in, in the frame in relation to that. But that's something that we'll, we'll have to see. Again, the thing is... Uh, what I'm looking for in relation to um, Gillen is tapes, because this is hard evidence that cannot be denied, in particular from the 90s. Now, weirdly, um, I'm sure everybody listening would have done that. I've got electronic kit from the 90s in my garage, which I haven't chucked away, which I kind of, I don't know what's on it. You can imagine that could happen to, even to Epstein, clever um, streetwise operator though he was and also Jean-Luc Brunel so it's possible that um, they could get trapped by something like this and it could trap others too we don't know so conspiracy cases can expand into further indictments with new co-conspirators do you see anyone else getting arrested any other big names this year um no um I, 
my you mentioned the word conspiracy and let me i did a story a long long time ago about um i, I did a piece of the observer magazine in the 80s out of conspiracy theories and i came to the conclusion that it was often the case that people who were what they did was that there were dots and you join up the too many of the dots to to draw a perfect picture of something and it, life isn't like that um and it's um um it's more complicated than that or less satisfactory and i don't know and it's i think it's wrong to sort of put people to speculate about people um w without good solid evidence i'll make one exception um which is um crown prince mohammed bin salman um who's commands some two trillion dollars of saudi money yeah. and there's been reporting in 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 the american papers in the for example the new york times that epstein um showed um, a new york times reporter um, in the late 20s like 2015 2016 picture of an arab prince that's mohammed bin salman by the way his nickname these days is mr bonesaw because he chopped up um or rather his goons uh, chopped up um, the uh, the dissident uh, Jonas Khashoggi. Um, the Crown Prince denies any wrongdoing. Um, it was his goons that did it, not him. Um, I'm just being clear about that, Sean. So um, it's possible that Jeffrey Epstein did have blackmail machinery, uh, i.e., tapes whirring away, uh, cameras whirring away, capturing things, and they could have caught somebody like Mr. Bonesaw. The other possibility is that Epstein was a wonderful and clever manipulator that knew that if you ever did anything about blackmail, that was trouble for you. So he could imply stuff. What he could do was organize a kind of a, a, a kind of atmosphere of sexual deviance where anything went, where you could do anything. You did, if you were the the rich bad person uh, you did everything you wanted or wanted to and there was a kind of suggestion that it might have been caught which meant that you were somehow in hock to epstein without him ever pressing record and i actually think that more likely so it may be that there are no tapes at all um I, i'm still in, in relation to jelaine i've got to come back to the simple point i don't know what the evidence, full evidence is until against her, until the trial starts, and we don't know what her defence is until um, we hear that. So, have you looked at Epstein's relationship with Elon Musk? Yes, um, he uh, Elon Musk denies any wrongdoing. He's got almost as much money as um, um, Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, so, there's a picture of Elon Musk at the Oscar party in something like 2014 from memory, and Shilene Maxwell's popping up, a kind of photobombing. It doesn't look like a photobomb. A photobomb to me is when I... Uh, I'm, I, I like photobombing, you know, my mates and my loved ones. And, and, and it's me going... And it, she's more sedate than that, so I don't think it's a photobombing, but they're there. There is reporting in the New York Times, again, that Elon Musk... Um, there was some kind of um, financial relationship, advisory relationship between Epstein and Musk. That Musk's people have denied that, and there is no, there are, um, as far as I can tell, there are no photographs or paperwork proving it. So it's an allegation, 
which has been made, which is denied. Um, again, Musk is the kind of guy, a bit like Wexner, who is both an extraordinary, brilliant um, money-making machine, a fantastically imaginative um, man with a, you know, a technological wizard, and he could also be a fucking idiot. In the same way, I'm, I'm a good, I'm a good reporter. I'm a bad chef. You can be, you can make a magic car, um, a wonderful electric car like Musk has done, and be a fucking idiot. He was also very wrong uh, to say what he said about the lovely uh, English cave, caving expert who helped save those poor, uh, you know, the, uh, the football, um, the little f- the football players who were um, trapped in the cave, and they were um, in Thailand, and they were f- helped. Freed by him, there was a British caver who was living with his Thai wife in a perfectly nice, proper relationship. And Elon Musk libeled the um, uh, the British cave expert, and he was he was the man who essentially drew up the the chart which helped save those kids. So Elon Musk can be a man who is very smart and very stupid both at the same time. There isn't any strong evidence. There is an allegation against him, which he's denied, and there is no strong evidence to prove it. So that's where that sits, I think. Well, look how silly Musk was when he said his company was going to get bought out when it wasn't going to get bought out. And there was also a rumor that Epstein was bringing in the Saudi prince you mentioned, the bone sawer. Um, Mr. Bonesaw. Mohammed bin Salman. There was a rumor that Epstein was bringing him in to do the buyout, but then Musk ended up paying a huge, like, 100 million fine or something for yeah, saying yeah. that. By the way, the, it, that's not that's a parking ticket for him. Um, <laughs> 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 it's a loss in witness, <laughs> I know. Um, it, <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, it's seven o'clock. <laughs> is it really? It is. Anyway, it's um, five minutes. Five minutes. Well, let's round it up. Um, you've mentioned a few times that the Ghislaine's trial's coming up. Do you actually think it will come up? Because the majority of these cases go to plea bargains. We'll see. Um, I don't think she's got much to bargain with. I think that the the feds are embarrassed that they let off Jeffrey Epstein. Um, they gave him too sweet a ride, too uh, a sweetheart deal, and. The danger for justice in the round is that they may be overcompensating in the other way. But um, I think, uh, as I said, the evidence against her is damning. Sorry, my my view of the evidence in the round is damning. I'm surprised that the feds have cut it off at 97. I don't understand why. The perjury charges uh, may change that. The difficulty is if it boils down to the word of a witness against Yelen, and what matters is what's happened in the room, and Epstein's dead, then I think it's possible, more likely than not, that she will be found not guilty. Have you tried contacting her in the federal uh, detention centre? No, because, um, I mean, her policy and her family, I contacted the Maxwell family, and um, the policy is, we're not going to comment, but the family believe that she's innocent. Um, I want justice to be done. I want to see the trial. I want to see uh, her um, her tried. I do feel sorry for her because her father was a monster, but that isn't a get-out-of-jail plea. So if you're giving that as a mitigating circumstance to Maxwell, we've all watched The Crown. Does Prince Andrew have the same mitigating circumstance? 
he denies it, but I find the evidence against him damning. I find the the fact that he can't explain the photograph is is dreadful. But in a way worse is his stay with a convicted paedophile. Um, that, that's inexcusable. And um, uh, I, it, it's no surprise to me that he's he's uh, had to leave public life. Um, he shouldn't, in my, at the moment, as a British taxpayer, we all contribute to him, uh, his payment on the civil list, which is something like £250,000 a year. And I don't think he should get a penny of that public money. It's not right. But do you think his upbringing has played a role in the, his behaviour? I feel... It, I, Sean, a long time ago, I did a piece about the royal reporters. These are the Rat Pack who used to follow the royal family. When, and, and they used to make Diana's life a misery. And, and I'm a bit of a, I'm a liberal lefty. And I, was, I came away from doing that piece for Time Out back in the day, being in the mid-80s, uh, being a bit sympathetic, to, much more sympathetic to the royal family than I had been. And I think Mrs. Queen is great. I think she's a fantastic public servant. And I um, and I watched her um, lovely uh, speech this Christmas, and I stand up for her, and I and I love the Queen. I I think her second son is a wrong one. Do you think the Crown should go to Charles's kids and bypass Charles? Um, no, I think um, I think Charles is all right. Bit of a fruitcake. I prefer him to. I, I like. I mean, the argument against Trump, uh, the, the argument in favour of constitutional monarchy is uh, is Donald Trump, isn't it? I think I'm. Um, I'd, I'm. 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 I, I don't want to bring down the monarchy. I think Prince, or rather, there are many, many important. There are many, many terrifying things in the world. The British monarchy isn't one of them. I think Prince Andrew has behaved disgracefully in this regard and should step away from public life and shouldn't get public money. John. This is like the biggest thing on our channel is this case, the Epstein case. So coming here today, you're going to get a lot of people reaching out to you. Um, how would you prefer them to reach out to you? And what links do you have that you you know they can click on that we can so, put below the video? So I, I'm by the way, I'm it hasn't been announced yet, but it should be next week. But I'm I, I'm going to write a book, um, working title Hunting Shalen which should come out later this year, much after the trial, obviously, uh, when we know the ending. Um, I've got a website, john.sweeney.co.uk, um, um, and you can click on that. I've written 12 books, one about Scientology, Church of Fear. One of, I, went on, I went on a holiday to North Korea. Well, actually, I, was, um, I went as a... I, uh, I went as a um, as a professor with a drinking problem and the North Korean secret police thought I had a bad alcohol problem, which I, <laughs> I acted that very well. Um, and, uh, and I've written four novels, um, the, the most popular of which is about the war in Burma in 1942, and it's called Elephant Moon. And the latest is one called The Useful Idiot. Which isn't an autobiography before you throw <laughs> that joke. Um, and then on Twitter... Um, um, You're active on Twitter. Yeah, I'm active okay. on Twitter. I'm at John Sweeney Raw, at R O A R. Um, John Sweeney R O A R. Um, that's in homage to me yelling uh, at the Church of Scientology. And if you, I'll put that link in to that clip 
the, the uh, it's got almost two million views. I'll do John. it for you. You <laughs> were not there for the beginning of the interview. Now, will you listen to me? <laughs> I was hoping you would finish with that, actually. So, um, I'm sure the many people watching this, you've enjoyed it. Let us know in the comments. Huge thank you to all the new subscribers. Subscription logo is in the bottom corner of the screen. Huge thank you to people who've gone down in the description box and clicked on John's links, our links. We've got our playlists, our donation links, everything else out down there. And huge thanks to Joe and James, cameraman, sound engineer, coming in here and the, doing this. This is the cult, yeah? Doing this this <laughs> day. I have two members of my own cult, according to John. <laughs> Are we allowed to do elbow bumps? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.